Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Fitter, Healthier Dad podcast, where you can learn how to improve your diet, lose fat, and get fitter in a sustainable and fun way without spending hours in the gym. Here is your host, Darren Kirby. This is episode 30 of the Fitter, Healthy Dad podcast. In today's show, we're going to be understanding how to stay injury-free and what to do if we do get injured. Joining me on the show today is Paul Hobra. Following a successful 16-year international kayaking career, Paul decided to bring his sporting expertise into the world of sports rehabilitation. In 2003, Paul launched Physiotherapy UK, and he has helped Olympic athletes such as Paula Radcliffe and Steve Cram. Paul also speaks all over the world and has written a number of books on running and injuries. Hi Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast today. How are you? Very good and it's my pleasure to come and join this podcast. So thank you for inviting me. No, it's a, it's a great pleasure to have you on and I think as we've just been talking about off air, um, injuries and, and physiotherapy is is very topical unfortunately for um, guys uh, in their 40s or coming towards their 40s when they decide that they're going to go all guns blazing and start to get fitter and healthier um, and uh, un- unfortunately this is the side that we don't necessarily think about when we thinking about uh, get fit and healthier but sadly um, it's a reality but equally I think there's a lot of stuff that we can do up front to kind of help us avoid that in the first case. So hopefully we'll, we'll dig into that today. Um, but before we do, Paul, it would be really good if we could get some um, information and background on yourself and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. Um, it's always one of those funny things, isn't it, talking about yourself? And and for very long yeah. I do, I have to write these profiles on myself. And I, I, find, <laughs> it, I find it sometimes a bit awkward. I've... I've had a, a quite an interesting route into the job that I do. So um, I am uh, quite dyslexic and I, okay. I was, um, I would say, struggling at school because my mum was a deputy head of the school and I, right. I perhaps opted for the, the role of the, uh, the class clown rather than the, the person at <laughs> front. No. So I, I struggled through school and was very fortunate this will date me a little bit but I was very fortunate I was the first year that ever took GCSEs and that gave me a bit of a leg up in life and I it wasn't lost on me um but I I was also by this stage a very accomplished kayak paddler canoeist uh, racing um okay like rowing river you know you'd, you'd be in between two sets of red boys you go as fast as you can from point to point and yeah so I was very, very committed in one part of my life, um, but academically, I was a bright kid, but wasn't really, um, you know, sort of applying myself. Uh, yeah. Only when I started working with the human body, when I my first degree was uh, sports science, which in many ways I was, I was probably gifted a place at university because I'd done very, very well at the sort of major um, world championships that summer and and the university I went to studying sport they kind of I think they saw that as a bit of an extra qualification really I'd I'd yeah. my way through various bits um, and it was once I was qualified and working with some high-end athletes trying to give them their top half or quarter of a percent of benefit through blood lactate analysis training with all that sort of stuff I realized I was totally useless once they got injured and I'd be sending them off to these these people who were walking on water, who were these physiotherapists who were incredible. And I'd been quite injured as an athlete and I'd always seen these people as being incredible individuals. And so being the sort of person, I went, right, I'm going to become one. And so I ended up doing a couple more degrees and ended okay. up being a, a chartered physiotherapist. And I didn't really gel my sporting background. I mean, I've been in the British kayak team for 16 years. I, I'd, I'd really enjoyed being a lottery-funded full-time athlete. I, I didn't enjoy as much as perhaps um, people wanted me to working in the NHS. I felt like I was doing everything a little bit one hand tied behind my back and often coming to the process a bit late with 16-week waiting lists and some of this. So right. uh, 2003, I set up my own practice, which was mm-hmm. a combination of 
doing all of the kind of physiological testing from my sports science background and the physiotherapy. And what I realized very, very quickly is in a business model, pain is a much bigger crowbar in somebody else's wallet than the desire to have that three or 4% improvement maybe. Um, It's changed slightly, but I'm now absolutely 100% a a physiotherapist with a strong, um, if you like, strength conditioning and and exercise prescription and, and, and I'd say sort of medical healthcare practitioner background. So I've studied with the Society of Musculoskeletal Medicine. Uh, I inject where necessary. And, and so I've got a plethora of, um, uh, of kind of qualifications. Uh, and I now run, uh, a very busy practice in Northumberland, a place called Hexham right. near Newcastle. Um, right. And I also travel to Harley Street uh, typically once a week. And I travel around the world lecturing on something called shockwave therapy, which many people have now heard of. But seven years ago when I started, nobody had. Um, okay. Probably the best thing that's happened to speed up um, recovery from injury. It isn't cheap, right. but if people really need to get better quickly, uh right. from an athletic point of view and you'll find in all of the premiership clubs uk athletics all of the major olympic sports will all be using this regularly and and i'm very very fortunate to be you know putting modesty to one side possibly the the most qualified uh, and experienced person in the uk for this right now which is why right. i lecture abroad so i guess yeah. a potted history is part athlete part um healthcare professional and, and i also present uh, professionally as well so does that yeah. help <laughs> it does yeah, that that helps a lot and i, I think um the just the, to kind of pick out there what you're talking about you know the human body and your hum, human performance as i've progressed as a which i loosely call myself an athlete now um that what i've found is that the the human body is such a fascinating piece of kit that we have and is in many ways, I believe, limitless, providing you treat it right. Um, and all too often, I think that, like I just said, really, is that we um, neglect it and we don't maintain it enough as we should. And I, I believe, but I feel like, as a, I guess, as a, as a, a potential client of your industry, that that is now changing slightly. In so much as people are becoming a lot more aware about their body and about the tightness and all the rest of it that goes on and they're being that they're kind of switching to a little bit more maintenance as opposed to kind of uh, reactive and 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 when there's an issue would you say that's would you you say you're seeing that or yeah absolutely so so let's go back to 2003 when I opened my doors I spent the first five minutes of every session explaining to people what a physiotherapist was people didn't know they, they yeah. have no idea. And still today you'll find people that don't know the difference between physio, chiropractic, osteopathy, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. um, But people just didn't have a clue. They they went to A&E or they went to their doctor, and frankly yeah. we were all witch doctors. And so yeah. nowadays not only do people know what a physiotherapist is, um, they have their guy or their girl. They, they People, yeah. people it, it almost own their physiotherapist as well. That's, that's mine. And, yeah. And, and so, the, and there's a reason for that is is partly because I think we've been very good at um, get, being a results based sort of practice. So people hear about. I mean, I'm talking, you know, physiotherapists generally. Also, mm. when you um, look at how people have started to to move through and understand people like Dave Brailsford, who this you know marginal yeah. gains. People yeah. start to look at themselves and go, do you know what? I want to be more professional with my with my approach. And you find, yeah. you know, uh, age group level triathletes, let's say, who are doing very, very well, training an incredibly high standard. Sometimes I think, my God, they're doing more than when I was yeah. in the in the full international team as a as a youngster. Um, and they are seeking out any slight gain to get them past their closest rival. And uh, and so they start to understand the benefit of looking after their body, their sports psychology. I mean, sports psychologists, uh, that's what I wanted to be when I was at university. But right. I, I thought no one's ever, no one is ever going to Google 
sports psychologist and go and pay money for it. And now, of course, they are. So it's not just the physio. It's the sports psych. It's the the nutritionist or dietitian. It's the technical support. It's the biomechanical support. Everything Mm. I studied in in 1990 in my first degree was all really very very um kind of out there in the very beginning and now it's commonplace in people not only that are not necessarily at international level but people who are a good club standard are using all these services and like you say maintenance and being proactive rather than being reactive which is exactly how i started my business and why in the first year it looked like it might fail spectacularly because yeah. the only reason people came to see me is if they tried everything else and they're in pain and they said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to invest a bit in this. Mm. Yeah. I think, um, I think when you're talking about age group of athletes now, um, you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I've been even looking myself personally at, at sports psychology because I listened to a podcast the other day where, you know, one guy had got, he'd knocked five minutes off his marathon time just by going and seeing a, a sports um, psychologist because, you know, now there is so much in, we have, we are in, I believe we're in such a fortunate time in terms of the information out there. But I think the the massive danger that's out there now is this whole self-medication and self-treatment, which I think probably you as a practitioner would grimace at because you think, oh, that's the last thing we need something to go and watch a YouTube video and they think they can fix fix themselves and all the rest of it. But just to to pick up on the other point you said there around the differences between physios and chiropractors, can you just actually just for for kind of in layman's terms lay out the differences between? Yeah, I mean, it's always difficult because I am a physiotherapist. So um, the, the trick is, is not to overload that and to be genuinely impartial which I will try to be. Um, I think that the first point is that a a physiotherapist is governed by the HCPC, the Health and Cares uh, Professional Council, and that is the same council that will look after most of the medics that you think of in a in a hospital situation so if you go and see a podiatrist a dietitian an occupational therapist um the the doctors are under the the gmc the general medical council um when you move into osteopathy they have their own singular osteopathic council and the chiropractic uh, council again so they they become they're slightly more self-governed i can be struck off for you know, blinking the wrong way. It's it's a very very highly uh, governed, uh, and and we get audited all the time, and and all that sort. Of, and I'm not saying these these other guys are not. Um, physio therefore becomes, in its purest form, possibly a a form of like general practitioner for the 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 musculoskeletal system because we have to study neurology we have to you know so that encompasses stroke parkinson's disease all this sort of stuff as a physio you can um extend your scope to become a prescribing physio where uh fairly straightforward medications you can actually write prescription for so we it should be that we're a kind of entrance to a funnel um and and most things outside of what your doctors do we can do i've very clearly specialized in musculoskeletal uh, sports yeah. physiotherapy so that makes me far more aligned to your osteopath or perhaps your chiropractor whereas right. a physio in turn we could be working with children with with older uh, persons in a burns unit palliative care I, i've chosen one stream of that but i had to learn it all in order to get here so there's the right. vast amount of medical knowledge if you compare yeah. that to the physical therapist that you might hear about in the in the states um when I'm when I'm teaching over there, people are like, "Why are we listening to a physical therapist?" They are by the consultants treated a bit more like a, um, a gym instructor or something. You know, they uh-huh. don't have the same sort of level of medical training. Is my experience of speaking to the consultants? I might be underselling that. When you uh, look at an osteopath or a chiropractor, those two tend to be a little bit more interchangeable. They would perhaps argue differently, but essentially they're working around. Uh, joint manipulation so the crack yeah. sound you get you know if you were to crack your knuckle or your back or whatever and they uh, i would argue that an osteopath works probably more closely to a musculoskeletal physio 
soft tissue okay. and, and joint manipulation and strength conditioning. The chiropractor is much more about the adjustment uh, and the overall general health. Uh, you know, they can they can become quite alternative. And I know one chiropractor told someone to take all their metal fillings out. And uh, um, but again. I don't think it's about the training. I think it's about the individual and their experience, the people they've worked with, and the referral that you get. Um, yeah, I, I would say that chiropractors are the richest of of all the three. Um, right, you know they might see you three times a week and as sort of an ongoing process. Um, yeah, uh, and the difference between an osteopath and a physio would be much, much more difficult to. To, to drive a wedge through uh, once you get down to the musculoskeletal level. But personally, I would choose to go and see the person that worked well for me that had the, the best referral. So it almost comes out, does it matter? Who's the person yeah. that got the rest of your triathlon club or running club fixed? Let's go and see them. Uh, and yeah it's, it's funny isn't it how you how you how you were saying there before about you know people align themselves and they they kind of commandeer it's my physio it's my chiro and people very much go and see practitioners based on you know other people's experiences and and results isn't it it's a very personal personal thing um i think well, the one thing that i've the, the way that i approach it now is that i'll go and see a chiropractor if i've if I've been out running and I, and I feel like I've tweaked something in, in, in loose terms, I'll go and see a chiropractor to kind of get myself sorted out because it, it feels very much to me for the people that I've seen is that a chiropractor will give me almost instant relief, but then a physio is more for me long term with the muscular side of things. So if I've tweaked myself running, then it's because I've maybe got some tightness somewhere or whatever. And I know the chiro can come can sort me out from a kind of a, almost like a pain relief perspective. But longer term, I need to go and see a physio because there's obviously some some imbalance there or some tightness there. Is that a fair assumption? Is, is that a fair kind of way to to kind of use different practitioners? Or yeah, would you say? Uh, well, that? I I think that so that there's problems there in that I could if if I I can imagine a single physio and a single chiropractor where that would exactly work. An, an adjustment to the spine or, or whatever is usually a, a transitory bit of, like, say, sometimes immediate relief. Not for everyone. Um, yeah. Scientifically, I could I could disprove the theory that, that you've just said, but I think in yeah. practice, um, there's there's a great deal of of kind of instant relief to be had. Now, I do do adjustments exactly like that, so I would immediately. Um, sort of defend the physio role and say, well, if you came to me, I'd do that and the other stuff, and you'd pay right. once and you get both. But not yeah. every physio might be trained to do that. So if you break it down to its most basic thing, if we were looking at someone that was, you know, the first couple of years out of university, then then that would probably ring true. When you get a, a very experienced individual, I would have thought that either of those would have been able to do all of the job themselves yeah yeah okay yeah that makes sense so it's very much practitioner based in their experience and, and their knowledge then i guess yeah, because yeah. there's there's terrible physios there's terrible chiropractors yeah. there's terrible osteopaths there's brilliant yeah. ones of each um so yeah. what you're looking for is a brilliant person who has a title rather than just going all chiropractors are the same otherwise we'd all go to the same hair salon because it was the cheapest we'd all drive the same car because it was yeah. you know the cheapest one we, we look for the thing that's going to give us the best value for money and the best quality based upon our needs and really in a healthcare scenario i'd want someone that had a great deal of experience expertise and and had a little bit of um you know information from someone that perhaps wasn't trying to sell me their services someone's actually been there seen it done it and is now telling me that, that that worked for me. I think that is the biggest litmus test, is someone has no no interest, nothing to gain by telling you that they're good experience with that person. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So if we're trying to kind of dial it back to the people who are perhaps, you know, they started off 2020, they're, they're either going to do some, some HIIT training, they're going to go to the gym, or they're just going to generally start exercising. 
What would you say is the best way to approach it from a, a, an injury prevention perspective? Because, and the reason to kind of give you an example, right? So let's say it's a, it's a, it's a 40 year old male, probably not exercised in 10 years. He's now going to go and do a load of exercise. You know, from a, a mobility perspective, they're not going to be mobile, agile as they think they are. Um, and all too often I see people kind of having these injuries. But my assumption is that a lot of these are preventable. So what would you say would be a good approach? Right. So so first of all, uh, science tells us uh, about how we should increase our training. So we're talking about increasing from zero here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I could show you a graph, but this is uh, we're not possible to do it. If you <laughs> um, if let's say your exercise level, let, let's just go one level above. Let's say you're doing 20 minutes running twice a week for example yeah. Yeah? yeah if you leave it at 20 minutes twice a week or if you increase it by 10 percent, so you go to 22 minutes twice a week or you actually reduce it um by five percent um mm. you have the same injury risk across all three of those if you yeah. increase it by 15 percent, your injury risk trebles two and a half times actually um wow. So you really do need to, when you're getting into starting an exercise plan, really, really, truly need to understand where your level is and be honest with yourself because anything greater than a 10% increment, you are significantly increasing your level of injury. So going back to your person who's basically done nothing, they're 40 and they want to get back into it, let's just think really, really simply here. Um, What's your goal? So maybe their goal is they would like to, just be fit or lose a bit of weight, yeah? Mm-hmm. I'm sure that you will agree with me, one of the fastest ways to get fit and lose weight is to go running. Um, yeah. It's possibly, it could be, depending upon your biomechanics, one of the quickest ways for you to find an injury. So yeah. if that's your goal, to begin with, 5% of your exercise time would actually involve running and 95% would involve things like swimming, exercise bike or going out on your bike uh yeah. a cross trainer doing some basic strength conditioning and some stretching exercises and yeah. over the weeks that five to 95 percent would start to change so that maybe six to eight weeks from now you might be on a 50 50 curve with that so 50 yeah. of the time is now running but it really must be that slow and you must be only going up by 10% of overall activity on each given week. So right. people go, oh, my long run was 10 miles, so I did 11 miles next week. But they've increased their interval running in, in the middle of the week, so they've already eaten up their 10%. It's a full week. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I tend to suggest people, look, we've if, if someone comes to me and they're totally deconditioned, then what we're right. looking at is how do we get some basic conditioning? Like could mm. we start doing some quarter squats, literally – uh, feet shoulder width apart and bend down quarter of the way, come back up again, do 10 of mm. those and do those, you know, four times staged out throughout the day. Um, start doing some very, very simple five sit-ups at a time, maybe spread that out. Yeah. The day. Have a couple of days rest. Your body takes 36 hours before it will bite you for what you did. You, you've heard of right. bombs, delayed onset muscle soreness. Most people yeah. think it's going to be the next day. Everyone now really knows it's two days later. That's because it takes 36 hours for your body to truly respond. So where people go wrong is they get excited. They exercise yeah. on day one. They do far too much, but they cope with it. They wake up in the morning and go, got away with that. They exercise the second day because they're motivated and they want to do it. They wake up the third day and they can't move and they blame the second session. That's the first yeah. session catching up with you. So by day four, you've now got two sessions in your system and you've probably maybe exercised again. So understand the body has a latent response to exercise that you only go up by 10% at a time. And if that's from a zero position start, then tread very, very carefully and mix it up. But start just by doing some very, very simple body weight exercises just to prepare your body. So Walking, you you probably put one and a half times your body weight through your your muscles and joints. Running yeah. would be two and a half, three plus times your body weight. We can prove this on pressure mats and scans. So, right. if you're really not used to doing much more than just your activities of daily living, 
don't suddenly go putting three times your body weight through. Start preparing that for for that onslaught, if you like, and then do very little, then wait two days, then do very little again, then wait two days, and very, very gradually build that up. You will end up at your goal faster than you will yeah. by trying to rush it in the early stages. Yeah. I think that's, that's so valuable because – you know, it's exactly like you say, it, it's almost like a bit of an ego thing from a perspective of, wow, I, I knew I could do this anyway. You know, I knew I could go out running. I could just get fit. This, this, this whole exercise stuff is quite easy. And like you say, then you don't actually feel it until a few days later. And the other thing that I've become sorry, very. Sorry, on that point, uh, from a famous film, don't let your ego write a check your body can't cash. I like that one. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah, that's I've not heard that one before. That's uh yeah, what film's that from? Top Gun. Ah, Top Gun, yeah. okay, yeah. Yeah, no, that that is that is but it is it is so true and, and you know, the older we become and the sedentary lives that we lead now, you know, sitting behind the desk eight hours a day and all the rest of it, just compounds the the immobile aspect of of, of how we how we are now, doesn't it really? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, uh, you, you've got every every buzzword to think about. So people are working longer at their desk. Go, go back to even the 1970s, 1980s. You know, I, I didn't have a, a mobile phone, didn't have a computer. Um, I would be going, you know, out and, and doing stuff. Nowadays, everything that, that can keep you entertained is all in one little, you know, pocket thing. You know, yeah. we, we hold the answer to every single human question in our in our palm of our hand and, and yeah. typically what we do is read about what other people are doing in their lives and and pictures of of cats weeing or whatever it, it, it's crazy isn't it? but um <laughs> yeah. but but the fact is we're now um a much more sedentary sort of existence uh, there'd be much much more manual labor people were working more in their gardens they, they, were, they were doing all sorts yeah. everything is kind of um you know machines do so much more for us now so that's why i think there's been a massive increase in people's desire to exercise it's a natural mm. thing for us to move unfortunately some of the population have been a bit left behind and they're not mm. they're not choosing to do that 40 minutes of exercise in a day so they just don't get any yeah because they're in this sort of manual uh, route through to doing other stuff um so what we've done is we've created um uh you know our own sort of problem and now the yeah. route out of it is it can be quite an expensive one as people try to develop this and try and get up from from their chairs and we're also pushed for time quite mm. an injury risk is oh i'm just going to finish this bit of work i'm desperate to get my run done before i've got to go and pick the kids up from ballet or whatever yeah. it is uh, so you jump up from your chair which said your hips flexed at 90 degrees for the last nine hours, give or take a trip to the toilet or the coffee machine. And then suddenly you want that hip to be able to flex all the way back to something in the region of 130 degrees when you go running. And lo and behold, you don't do any preparation because you're trying to fit it in. The run's the important bit, not the warm-up, not the stretches, not strength conditioning, because you want to feel that your heart has been bursting out of your neck for that 40 minutes so you really feel like you've achieved something. What happens is you put strain on the hip flexors. The hip flexors originate from the lower back. Next time you sit at the desk, your lower back sore. You don't know why. You blame the desk, not the run and your lack of preparation. And the cycle keeps going until you come yeah. to see me. And people are going, oh, I need my desk set up looking at at work. And I need this doing and my employer's crap. And no, you didn't prepare for your run. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's... it's- and and I I keep using um, the analogies in some of the videos that I do um, and related to kind of project planning in, in the corporate world, right? You wouldn't go about a project in your business, in your life, build a house without a plan, would you? No. And and so it, it for me, as I've learned to my cost, I'll be honest, um, it is about having that plan, and it's not just about putting your running shoes on and going out. It's it's the the preventative um, and the and the and the pre work you need to do ahead of that to ensure that you do have you know a good run and you know so many so many of us don't because like you say we 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 have this notion that 
we are pushed for time. We, we all have the same amount of time in the day. It depends on how you plan it and how efficient you are with it, really. Um, and, you know, from my point of view, we are living, like you said, you know, we are living in this Amazon economy where we want to click and have the result now, right? And, and that just doesn't happen with a human body and with fitness. No, it's it's a beautiful thing. Like my my eldest is sixteen, and and she's grown up with everything at her fingertips. Yeah. One thing that she keeps asking, how can I get this? How can I get this quickly? In, in a fitness term, I say it's the one part of your life that's teaching you everything about everything else in your life. Is that there really are very few quick fixes, and this yeah. just takes time and dedication. And when you try and rush it, you just yeah. effectively you just make my business busier. Don't, don't, you know, don't make the physio happy because, because you, I feel like it's sort of, uh, I'm, I'm almost being a bit, a bit negative here and I, I want to inspire people to exercise. Yeah. I just think that, as you say, it's all about planning and actually the people that seek a little bit of help first and not just mm. go to the University of YouTube, which we were talking about earlier, <laughs> really can get the best results because I, I've never met a human being that is identical to the one I saw before, the one I saw afterward. And and the real trick of this is we can't have a sheet of paper that says, oh, you've got knee pain, right, just do that. It just doesn't yeah. work. There are no. so many intricate reasons why that human being is so incredibly different to, to the next one. Um, and I I think that one of the practices that you'll really struggle to automate and and almost to to make in a robotic fashion will be the healthcare industry because it is so personalized so mm. i i, I yeah. do i do have a desire that people would when embarking upon a journey would would first set out and say that is my goal we did this when i was a, a an athlete right that's my goal the goal might be the olympics in four years time so yeah. Where do I need to be at the World Championships the year before? Because that's qualification. Yeah. What position, therefore, do I need to be uh, two years from now? What do I need to be in one year? What do I need to be in six months? What do I need to do in the next hour that's going to facilitate yeah. that goal in four years' time? And that was yeah. really, really precision planning. And, of course, you have you write it, but it's got to be flexible. It's like a white-label plan. But you have to know roughly what you're doing so then, you know, four days off ill where you genuinely couldn't train what does that mean to the rest of the program a lot of people that that uh if you like perhaps uh, lack a little bit of experience training will try and squeeze those sessions back in and we used to say or my coach used to tell me uh a session missed is a session lost never ever think about it again and certainly don't try and cram it in somewhere yeah. you change that 10 percent rule so there are lots and lots of ways in which having you know, some decent help. It doesn't mean you need to sign up to a big coaching program. It doesn't mean you need to, you know, purchase a thousand pounds worth of physio ahead of time. You just need to think, yeah. genuinely think about who you are. If I asked you now what a typical training week was for you, um, mm. the response might not be from you, to be fair, but the response from most people would be to tell me their best ever week's training. And so if you then base a program off of that, They've sort of let their ego get in the way of that. No, what's an average mm. training week? And people forget. It's a bit like setting a diet. What do you normally eat? Oh, I'm very good. I have lots of fruit and veg and all the rest of it. So only when someone actually makes a diary of what they actually yeah. eat, are they shocked yeah. at how much came yeah. in their body? And it's the same with exercise. Yeah? Yeah. So, you know, you might think, well, I'll get my four-hour bike ride done on a Sunday morning early. And then, mm. and then you, you're satisfying your kids and your your partner's needs for maybe shopping for ages. You're on your feet for five hours. That's not really yeah. recovery. Let's let's go no. back and think about this a little bit better. We don't all have to be Dave Brailsford, but we do need to no. think about that. And like you say, planning it means that you can then go. Is I've got four year plan or one year plan or a two month plan. I now need, know what I need to do tomorrow, and I now know what i need to do today does that befit the 10 percent rule or not is this something which i'm capable of is it going to push me just enough but not too hard and if you're just doing this on your own and you're not sharing it with anyone you can be really very brutally honest with yourself about yeah actually that's going to be a real challenge for me let's dial it down yeah. a little bit yeah 
Yeah, but I think all too often, like like we've said, you know, ego gets in the way and you assume that, you know, I said it at the beginning of the interview, you know, that our bodies are, are truly limitless, but they're only limitless if you treat them properly. And I think, you know, you, you can be brutally honest with yourself, but all too often you kind of, unless you have someone challenge you, you kind of think that you can do something uh, or, or achieve something in a, in a lot shorter time frame than you actually can. Um, and, and if you give yourself a longer time frame, you'll actually achieve it in a much easier, more sustainable way. Absolutely. And that's the same with, with diets, the same with, with mental health. It's the same with, with you know, your work-life balance. You know, you can't just make this sudden change and expect your routine to adapt to it. You know, on a really, really positive note, the, the human body is very, very adaptive. And if yeah. you give it the right stimulus, it will adapt, it will overcome, and it will do it safely. We live in the most fantastic personal castle that you could ever hope an engineer to come up with. It's why they cannot create robots yeah. that look human. They just can't. Yeah. We, it is a fantastic set, and it will pretty much develop and improve based upon the correct level of stimulus without almost without fail but it's when people uh, well what we've spoken about for the first part of this podcast is it's if you don't understand what your limits are and you go well Mm. i used to run an hour three times a week so going for 20 minutes now after a Mm. break is easy no it isn't anymore that 20 minutes whilst it seems small to your six years ago self it is now massive to your 2020 self so just rethink that it's not You've got to be realistic with yourself, but your body will adapt given the chance. And it is a fantastic unit of of cells that really will not let you down unless you let it down. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So we're talking about this and, and obviously let's put, like you said, a positive spin on it. We've talked about being a little bit more conscious and about planning your runs or when you're starting to run i mean we're assuming that that people are going to start running you know that's probably the most accessible form of 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 exercise that you could do so in terms of prevention then uh paul what what are we what would you say are the you know the the things that the listeners could take away and just just implement before they go running so some of the some of the best things that you can do uh, sorry, someone's trying to call right. me. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the best things you can do uh, in, in kind of preparation is some very, very basic strength conditioning stuff. I'm a massive right. fan of the single leg squat. Both both my books okay. are, are, are laden with uh, single leg squat information. So if you right. think about when you're running, you're basically doing a single leg squat, standing on one leg and bending the knee in its simplest form. Yeah, um, yeah. And you're doing lots and lots of those. In fact, if you ran a marathon, you uh, 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 someone sort of towards the back of the pack would be looking at doing 50,000 or more steps. So 25,000 yeah. single leg squats. So ask yourself, could you do 25,000 single leg squats today? You know, the answer yeah. probably not. Uh, no. We don't train to be able to do that, but we have to train the body to be able to accept that load. So before you go for a run, stand in front of a, of a long mirror Stand on one leg and squat down, uh, you know, mm. 50, 60 degrees of knee bend. And just watch in the mirror as you do this five or six times and try and decide whether you um, are, in a, are in a position there where your knee stays over the middle toe. Yeah. If it doesn't, let's say it does for the first one, but by the fifth one it's, it's come right across to the big toe, then yeah. you have a fundamental strength uh, issue where what you need to do is to be able to strengthen up the, the around the lateral hip, lateral glutes uh, to be able to perform a number of those squats without knee deviating. Otherwise, you're going for a run and you could end up with shin pain. You could end up with with knee pain. There's all sorts of things. So very very simple and easy test. Actually, in my second book, we have this as a test. Then then go to the wall, put your toes against the skirting board so you're facing a wall. Just one foot. Uh, and see if your knee can touch the wall without your heel lifting off. You should be able right. to do that. 
Then move your toes about half an inch away from the wall and try again. And keep going until you cannot touch your knee on the wall without your heel lifting off. And if you can't see a reasonable gap of, I I don't know, I'm I'm working in inches here, which is ancient, but um, let's say you couldn't get at least two inches away from the wall, um, then you've probably got quite a significant issue around your ankle and your calf muscle. So you might be more likely to hurt your Achilles or your your calf muscle. So start doing some basic range of movement stuff around your your calf and ankle. When you um, then move on to doing things like uh, stressing your glutes. So if you lay on your front and you bend one knee to 90 degrees and you placed your foot perpendicular to the ceiling. Now imagine you put a tray on the base of your foot and imagine yeah. balancing six uh, glasses of champagne on that tray. Can you yeah. lift that tray an inch off the ground you know, with your leg without spilling any? And could you do that right. five times? Because then you know whether you're using your glute. If you're using your hamstring, the knee will bend more. You'll tip all the drinks all over your back. And actually you want your yeah. glute to be working, not your hamstring and hip extension. So yeah. if, if I, I'd say, you know, someone comes into me and they say I want to start running I go right well let's have a look what your glute strength is like let's look what your single leg squat uh, is like uh, and let's look um, and see what the range of movement around your foot and ankle is like because they're going to give me the very very quick picture of whether this person is okay to crack on and do a little bit of running or whether we've got some remedial work to do there are loads of other tests but if people are thinking about starting out, then there's some basic tests that you could do on yourself that actually, laughably, probably most quite accomplished runners might struggle to to do that. Yeah, yeah. They've built up their strength over time. They've probably been injured a number of times, and they've still not paid attention to those basics, so they still find themselves perennially injured. And there's much more besides, which yeah. too much to go into, but they're the easy ones to – explain so people can make a mental image of it and if you could start to think about the strength conditioning work required so that you can go for a run then you are already 80 percent of the way there it's so vitally important yeah i, I think you know for, for me personally core has always been a key part of, of what i'm doing because it's you know your whole body particularly running more than anything centers around that having a, a strong core strength um, but two of the things that you've mentioned there have actually kind of made raise my eyebrows because I'm like, Jesus, I can't do many single leg squats. I could probably do, I'd say, 12 each side um, before I start to get fatigued. And the other issue that I've had personally is around lazy glutes. So what I used to find was that when I got above 20 Ks in my run, my hamstrings would really start to tighten up because I found that I was running from my hamstrings and not from my glutes. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, even I've been doing it seven years and, and even then, you know, I was, was not, you know, not aware of, of that. And, and those, you know, basic, um, you know, suggestions you've given on exercises there is, is very, very key. Yeah. And it's actually, it was one of the things that, um, so my, my, my first book was Running Free of Injuries, which which some of your listeners might have, have yeah. read. Uh, my second one that comes out, uh, it's actually next Thursday, so I don't know when this is going out, but the the 23rd, so two days before the National Running Show. Um, right. And I've actually specifically put in there these tests in that book. And then okay. there's a table where people fill out how they did, left versus right. And then right. they kind of know which page then to go and do the right exercises. And then they come back and they can retest and they can remark it down. So they can actually plot their progress in the book, if you like. So it sort of becomes a, a small training diary of, of their strength conditioning work as well. And it was, it was very important to me because he wrote a book called The Runner's Expert Guide Stretching. And really what people are going to do is go and read it. Go, I need to do all of these. So at the beginning yeah, of the book, yeah. it's a case of streamlining that and saying, well, have a little test. See what ones you actually need to do. Then go and be selective. Choose those ones. Do a six-week program for yourself. Then come back and retest. And those ones that you've kind of covered off and you're, you're now really quite good, you've got good range of movement or good strength, um, you can maybe just do a maintenance program on those and then go looking mm. for 
other areas where you, you perhaps need a bit of work. And over the course of the first year of owning that book, you could really restructure yourself and actually bulletproof your body to a point where maybe I put myself out of business. Who knows? <laughs> I doubt that very much, Paul. I doubt that very much. It would be, uh, I guess, it, yeah. It would, um, unfortunately, we're dealing with with, with humans, and uh, as 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 much as you would like to think that that would be the case, I think sadly that that won't. Well, for you anyway, that won't be the case. Well, I'll give you um, a statistic as to why I won't be out of business. Only seven percent of patients that see healthcare professionals do all of the exercises. Uh, yeah, you need to do the number per day and for the required duration of weeks. Only seven percent right. follow that. So if you only yeah. give out exercises, you've only got a ninety-three percent chance of success. What I try wow. to do, both in my clinic and in my books, is to explain to people and prove to them why they need to do it, and then give them yeah. a follow-up test because the statistic moves to close to seventy percent of people doing it, which means you've only got a 30% failure rate over a 93% failure rate, which is, is, is massive. So it's all about the education. Yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree. And I know myself, you know, once I understand the reasons why I've got to do something, it just makes it that much easier for me. And I know everybody's different, but you know, and it's not necessarily going into the science. It's, it's, you know, do X and then Y won't happen. You know, it just, it just makes it much simpler. Yeah. So, one of the things that I've recently uh, come across, Paul, and I heard a lot of practitioners talking about, and that is um, warming up and cooling down. Now, um, there was a there was a program on in the UK between Christmas and New Year, and there's a lot of practitioners on there talking about um, warming up, and they're saying don't bother warming up because your muscles are already cold, and the chances are that you could pull something or do some damage before you've even started. What's what's your take on that? uh so listen there's there's this is a bit like the a glass of red wine uh, a day is good for you yeah yeah so so let's just delve into why that statement unfortunately for many people will, will be false the re yeah. that, that scientific i'm coming on to your question by the way that scientific paper showed that people that didn't drink any wine at all were more yeah. likely to be someone that a had a previous issue with alcohol or because they weren't drinking alcohol, they're more likely to eat chocolate and crisps and other things to reward themselves differently. The people yeah. that drank more than a glass of wine a day tended to be chronic drinkers, and therefore they had various other health problems associated with that. So those that had a moderation of just one glass a day tended to be the healthiest person all round. So yeah. what you have to look into is what is meant by these statements, don't bother warming up don't bother doing this, don't bother doing that, right? So there are some scientific studies that show that if you static stretch the body, so yeah. stand in a static stretch, that you are reducing the power output of that muscle. So in right. effect, um, extrapolating that to the fact you're going to be weaker and you're therefore going to perform at a lower level. Now let's think about someone going for a 20-minute run who who is – like you said, lax mobility and all the rest of it. Is yeah. their prime concern how much power their calf muscle can produce when really they're only probably producing 20 to 30% of their maximum power anyway? Or is their main concern, I don't have an adequate range of movement around my calf and my foot and ankle, and so every single stride I could be on the brink of my end of range of movement and therefore an injury. So yeah. don't warm up and don't stretch is actually potentially an evil thing to say to someone who has less conditioning and who isn't doing strength conditioning, i.e. stretches at another time in the day when they're in the gym or, or whatever yeah. at the end of a session. Um, but it could be a very, very relevant thing to someone that was going to do a 100-meter sprint or a, a one-repetition max effort. So it's all yeah. put into context, and you also have to relate that to where you are in your fitness journey. If you know... Mm -hmm that you're, you're tight as a guitar string and you've had, you know, very, very regular calf muscle strains or pulls or they just feel tight, don't, don't go out without doing some preparatory stuff. Um, yeah. There is, however, some really good science to show that range of movement, more dynamic stretching, so, you know, a bit of walking, going up and down the stairs, doing some, some gentle calf raises, that sort of stuff actually helps uh, prepare the muscle. 
yeah. and is sometimes as good because you're taking it through the range of movement. Building mm. up the walking lunges is great. You get knee yeah. flexion, you get hip extension, you get ankle uh, dorsiflexion and plant flexion. So you're doing so that you're not holding for 45 to 60 seconds, but you are preparing yourself for running. And that's where most people are now accepting that the warm-up should be a more of a dynamic building yeah. up gradually. Take a leg swing. You're doing a pendulum swing with your leg, yeah, a little bit of knee movement, a little bit of hip movement, and gradually as you warm up, that gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it goes probably beyond what you need for your running. Yeah, you yeah. need to go there. But you've warmed it up. You've taken it through that range of movement and beyond. You're now good to go. You don't need to yeah. sit in 14 different static stretches to cover off everything that hip might do. But you do it yeah. gradually. You do it a bit more dynamically. Afterwards, there's a good argument for doing, you know, some more kind of yoga poses, a bit more static stretching. Because yeah. the the mere fact that your muscles are being contract, relaxed, contract, relaxed, contract, relaxed. Muscles are like lots and lots of different cells. And the analogy I use is imagine two brushes with the prongs facing each other and you push them in so the prongs overlap and then you pull them back out again so they, they come back apart. And muscles contract and relax in a concertina fashion, lots and lots of those hair brushes in a line. So when they all contract together, all the brush bristles overlap and when they all relax, all the brush bristles come back apart. At the end of a, of a really hard session, you've got more overlap with those brush bristles, brush, brush bristles right <laughs> way across, and you need to do some gentle static stretching just to yeah. bring those back out to their full length. So yeah. understand what's behind these big statements in magazines and newspapers that are designed to work to your confirmation bias that you can't be bothered to warm up. So if someone says warming up's bad, you don't even read, you go, great, don't need to do that. Yeah. yeah. Don't allow yeah. that to happen. Read what it actually means and then follow it with caution. Yeah. I think yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. And and actually that's something that I've not done is 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 like the active warm up. I think that might might be what you call it. Yeah. But that yeah, doing those lunges it, it would be perfect, especially around ankle mobility and your hip flexors and stuff like that. I think that's that's um Yeah, and, and so so take it a, another natural stage further. So um, as you're working towards, let's say you're going to run a marathon. I see a lot of marathon runners, right? Let's say you're going to run a marathon and all of your training has been unimpeded. No one's left a plastic bottle on the ground. You haven't got to get round a, a rhino in, you know, the, the central street in, in Middlesbrough or wherever. Um, but then you go and run the marathon and you're dodging left to right. Your body hasn't been trained yeah. in that movement. You might have run 21 miles in training, but none of that was lateral. So it makes you wonder why people have adductor or abductor issues by Tower Bridge on the London Marathon because they're doing mm. things that they weren't used to. Think about the event and do some preparatory work for that lateral movement as well. Don't become a one-trick pony. No, and that's why I think um, you know trail running and things like that in the winter is very, very good because because the ground is 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 relatively uneven and you and like you say you are doing that lateral that movement from side to side and uneven ground and you know getting used to that and that's that's very tough to actually deal with when 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 you're when you're running as well so yeah, yeah getting your body and it works your proprioception much more as well which is your body's understanding of where it is in time and space mixed in with with um your balance so proprioception it's big long words part of its balance part of its your brain understanding where your foot is in the recovery phase and all that sort of stuff so um it really works your proprioceptive forces no one step is the same it gives yeah. your nervous system a lot more to deal with and actually you you become stronger as a result but likewise mm. terrible piece of advice for the person just starting out they yeah. need a repeatable surface they can rely on whilst their body gets used to the actual simple act of running yeah okay so paul before we finish then what would you sum up would be the five key actions that listeners could take away today to really help them avoid you know the injuries that that we've been talking about okay um this is simple and, and i've given this advice in lots of different places um concentrate on your core your arms and legs are going to have to work twice as hard if they're not coming from a decent foundation. The foundation of body movement sits with the core. Being able yeah. to do a plank 
does not mean that you have a wonderful core. There are people with six packs that have terrible cores, and there are people that have got a big old um, protruding beer belly that can have a fantastic core. The core are the tiny little muscles that that sit around the spine, and this natural corset that extends around your your sort of lumbar spine. Now, some good Pilates moves are very good. Just to describe one very very quickly, if you lay on the ground like you're about to do an old-fashioned sit-up. So your knees are bent and your feet are flat on the floor and, you know, by and large together, yeah? Your knees can't be squeezed together. And you imagine that you're about to go to the toilet. And in the process of stopping the flow of going to the toilet will engage a muscle called transverse abdominis, the the key, if you like, to to unlocking your core, yeah, or locking your core. Uh, once that is, is activated, and you can feel it if you put two fingers on those little bony points on the front of your, of your pelvis, go in a bit and down a bit, and you cough, those muscles yeah. will bounce. So when you sit in that crook lying position, imagine you're going to go for a wee and then stop the flow. Those are the muscles that will do it. You'll feel under your fingertips they're doing it, and you know they're contracted. Keep that contracted. The second stage, whilst that is contracted, is draw your belly button in towards your spine, not by holding your breath, but by using muscle. And the last thing is to ever so slightly flatten your lower back towards the floor. You have just engaged all of those core muscles that make up that natural corset. And by holding that lock together for 10 seconds at a time, 10 times whilst you're watching the TV or listening to this interesting podcast, um, (laughs) 10 times a day of 10 second holds, you will start to develop your core. And then you can repeat those stages. You won't have the floor to to flatten your back towards, but you can repeat those stages whilst doing a basic sit-up, whilst doing a plank or a kneeling plank. And that will mean your core is activated all the time. That can shave minutes, not seconds off your half marathon or marathon time just by having a better core because your legs and your arms and the rest of your body will have less work to do because you will have a stronger base. Right. When you think you've got that done, single leg squat, everyone that's listened to the whole thing, maybe I was going to say that. Um, <laughs> that is so functional. You've got foot, ankle, you've got balance and proprioception, you've got knee, you've got hip, you've got glutes, you've got core, you've got lower back, all being worked. You should be able to do 25 without very much knee deviation to the midline over your middle toe. Each side should be able to do that a number of times a day, every day. Right, okay. The uh, glute activation, so you can do things like bridges, which is like the start position for the glute activate for the core activation, but you actually lift your hips up so your knee, hip, and shoulders are in a line. Or you can do the champagne balancing exercise, which I prefer, which I mentioned earlier in the podcast, lying down. Um, Then you start to get on to making sure that you don't end up with with common injuries. So let's start with two of the most common ones. Shin splints, um, walk around without your toes touching the floor a number of times a day. So you build up the strength in those muscles that support the foot as it slowly lowers down to touch the ground when you run, and you will avoid that. And... um, the single leg squat looks after your knee. Uh, and then the um, the other thing that I would really recommend is to stop friction from the dreaded iliotibial band, IT band friction, is yep. if you wear a pair of jeans, in the mm-hmm. right pocket, there'll be a small coin pocket. You know the one? Yeah. If you slide yep. two fingers into there, your fingers are now over a muscle called TFL, tensor fasciolata. Okay. Think transport for London, TFL. And that is the connectile, con, uh, contractile component of the IT band. So right. that is the only bit that you can really make a difference to to stop ITB friction syndrome. The iliotibial mm-hmm. band has a tensile strength of steel, and you can roll it, ball it, punch it, shoot it, do whatever you want, and it will not and cannot change length. So right. The only way to change it is to work on that TFL muscle and there are stretches, or you can get a little tennis ball or golf ball. You can roll around it and then do the stretches. It's not one for a podcast or a radio. It's very difficult to describe. It's a bit like line dancing. The shameless plug is in both of my books mentioned earlier. Or if you put in TFL stretch or even ITB stretch, which is slightly inaccurate, you will find it on Google. All right, okay. So there you have my, my top five. That's perfect. Yeah, I think um, they are really simple but seriously effective 
um yeah just basic uh, exercises the the what i've written down here the we control one is uh that's really simple but um yeah very effective i wonder how many people will listen to the podcast standing up were actually doing that i was yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, if, if you actually, a little test for you, if you get into that yeah. position and you think you've got your core sorted and you still yeah. need two uh, fingers on each side of that of that um, uh, muscle, yeah, try very slowly lifting one leg off the floor and then putting it back down again. Just as that touches, lift the other one up. And if both right. muscles aren't staying completely contracted and there's no pelvic rock, you do right. Not have suitable core control you should be able to hold that absolutely still your pelvis absolutely still and they should both remain taut and and contracted whilst you lift your leg up and the points at which it will change is the change of direction at the top of the movement and as you okay. your feet and you'll notice one side can't control it make sure you can do that 25 times three sets of before you even consider doing a plank right okay that's uh, yeah, very valuable advice, and and yeah, the 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 single leg squat as well. I mean, it's um, you know, that's um, that is not easy no. uh, to be honest to do that. But it's interesting how you say look, unless you can do twenty five of those, which I'll be honest, I that I there's no way I'll be able to do twenty five of those on each side without being seriously fatigued in in my in my muscles. So that's something that that. Yeah, I mean, even me running seven years, I, I need to work on. So that's really valuable. And yet, and yet so to run a marathon, you're expecting your body to to cope with twenty five thousand on each leg, and to do it yeah. each time. It's quite a, quite a big jump, isn't it? Well, it's it, yeah, and yeah, it is, and that comes back to what we said about earlier around once you understand the reasons why you need to do that. You know, you've got twenty five thousand on each leg. You're, you're going to be more inclined to do single leg squats when you know when you plan, aren't you? When you go to the gym, so it's yeah, understanding the reasons why I think is very valuable to be honest. Um, so, Paul, it's been fantastic talking to you today. I really appreciate your your time. Um, but how can obviously you mentioned you've got a new book coming out? So let's talk about that first. Um, when is it coming out? What's it about? How can people get hold of it? So, yeah, so Thursday, the 23rd of January 2020, um, and it's published by Bloomsbury. My my surname's Hobra, H-O-B-R-O-U-G-H. If you put Hobra into Amazon, then all my yeah. books will, will come up. Um, yeah. And this, if you like, is, is what to do. It's kind of the book, if you're not injured, then crack on with The Running Expert's Guide to yeah. Stretching. Um, right. Because... This is is everything it should do to try and remain injury free. Uh, right, I'm very proud of it. It's it's been out on pre order for three months. It's okay for the last six weeks. It's been on Amazon, um, the 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 book that is most anticipated or whatever the title is. They they do, uh, and it's yeah. 25 in the charts, and that's on pre sales alone. Um, my my desire for this book is that people can go in, they can learn the, the standard they're at now, which has been a large part of the subject of this podcast. Yeah. All the stuff we've been talking about is contained within this book, and you can actually note down what you're doing, how your progress is. But there's so much strength and conditioning exercise, and there's probably more strengthening exercise than there are stretching exercises, which sort of goes against okay. the title. But it should be something that if you did even a quarter of the exercise in this book, and there are many um yeah the two-day photo shoot and, and mark and morag the models were brilliant but knackered at the end of it um <laughs> they, the the um you would honestly you'd be putting me and all of my colleagues out of a job it is it would be not impossible for you to get injured outside of a rugby tackle on a park <laughs> um and, and the first book which which was a bestseller i'm so proud of it running free of injuries there's a forward by steve cram and Another one of my clients, Paula Radcliffe, said it's the uh, a much needed book for every runner's bookshelf or something on the front, and uh, yeah. lots of people have said lovely things about it. Um, I've never had a negative review from it, and the thing that, that people say, and I hope it's come across in this podcast, is that 
I, I simplify something that historically they've read and they found it quite complicated. For me, I'm a simple human being. I said right at the beginning, uh, my academic life was plighted a little bit by, by dyslexia. I, I'm not a natural author, um, mm-hmm. but I've really enjoyed the process of writing in a conversive way. I'm so mm-hmm. thankful to Bloomsbury for allowing me to write in that almost magazine article way. Uh, yeah. Don't get me wrong, there's 70,000 words in every book. Um, yeah. So plenty of room for some spelling mistakes. But um, but there, it's what's really been the best feedback I've ever had is just people saying, it's just so simple. It really unlocks it for me. And, and that's what I've really enjoyed about the process of writing it because yeah. me, they're not a money-making exercise. This is... This is, is there's a, a certain element of altruism in writing a book. Um, yeah. In, in that, I just want people to enjoy them. I just want mm. people to get information and say, "God, that was that one point was really good," and that's enough for me. I can I can leave that as my you know uh, as, as my thing for the world. But um, in terms of of getting in touch, look, I do probably a third of my day because i spend most of my time in Northumberland, which is a long way away from a lot of people. Um, yeah. And it's beautiful. So keep it that way. I don't everyone move in there. Um, <laughs> is, is a third of my day is probably doing Skype physio consults. It's something that okay. I, I started a few years ago and has, has grown um, in, in its sort of popularity. And, and it, you know, it's 40 minutes one-on-one with me. I can see you. I can get you to do these things in front of me and I can diagnose. Yeah. And I've got, you know, I've got a Facebook group with like 3000 practitioners that we, okay. and, and so I can just go out. Oh, this is a great person. Get, go and see them or uh, find yeah. someone local to you or possibly even solve the problem without ever touching you. So, um, yeah. if you go to physio and therapy, .co.uk or paulhobra.com you can you can yeah. get an audience with me on either one of those um okay and if you've never ever tried shockwave therapy it is my absolute baby it's my it's my fourth child i use it 10 times out of 14 clinical visits uh, which is what i'm yeah. doing a day and it is the best thing that has happened to the health and fitness industry bar none for such a long time it literally okay. speeds up your recovery by 40%. And I teach other practitioners how to use it all around the world. And seeing the, their lights come on when they first treat their patients with it and go, my God, it was incredible, is it, that's where I want people to start understanding what that is and seeking out clinics that not only have that, but are trained to an appropriate level so that you can get the best out of it. And I'll, I'll help people find those clinics myself as well. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, that's something, um, a topic which I'd love to, to talk about. So maybe we'll get you back on again. But um, it's something that I've not heard of before today either. So um, I'll yeah, I'll it. definitely be looking at that. Can I, can but, I uh, speak the other thing? Um, obviously, Instagram's a thing and, and I'd love to yeah. be ahead of my daughter. So at Physiotherapy <laughs> UK. <laughs> yeah, so guys, listen, listen to the podcast, head over to Instagram. Give him a give him a few likes, a few hearts. It'll um, make him make him feel better. But on a more serious note, I highly uh, recommend you go and, and get those books, particularly uh, Paul's uh, new book that's coming out. Because uh, that you're absolutely right, Paul. You know, unless you're a medical practitioner yourself, a lot of the books that I've read, you know, is so complicated, and and you need to have a PhD to understand it. So you know, putting it in in layman's terms for for the rest of us, um, it can only be a, a good thing. And like you say, you know, maybe one day it will do you out of business, but I don't think you you need to worry too much in the short term. No, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. Brian. All right. Thanks very much, Paul. I appreciate your time and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Brilliant. Thanks, buddy. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Fitter Healthier Dad podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit subscribe. And I would really appreciate if you could leave a review on iTunes All the links mentioned in the episode will be in the show notes and a full transcription is over at fitterhealthierdad.com.